0: highest function of ecology is understanding consequences. The more life there is within a system, the more niches there are for life. Life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. It binds more energy into the system through the tremendous chemical interplay from organism to organism. Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now. Nature tends to compensate for diseases, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them in the system in her own way. The historical system of mutual pillage and extortion stops here. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. The physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. We have the record in front of us, and our course is obvious.
1: The gods of creation are deeply troubled. As the sea is ill, so too are the land and the sky, for they are linked. There is no escape. We pay for the violence of our ancestors. We are all the seas on this planet. We are the ocean. Yet, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there, staring out at you.
0: Okay, Desert Mouth, don't get all excited. It's not like you or the Queezak Hatterack or anything. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and Supernormal July continues today on 42 Minutes, a production of sync Book Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. We are the voice of the outer world. And you can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at sync 42 and at syncbook. It's the 14th day of July, so go set a Watchman because this is our 193rd broadcast. Although many are concerned with the new horizons of Pluto, also known as Hades, the god of the underworld, today we find ourselves a little closer to both heaven and hell on the desert planet of Arrakis, also known as
1: Tunes. You know, Will, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. Hello, Doug here, and today on 42 Minutes, we'll not only consider seas of sand, but the very ocean itself. And we'll do so with the child of Dune, that is, Brian Herbert, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers and son of famed science fiction author Frank Herbert, author of Dune. Mr. Brian Herbert has won several literary honors including the New York Times Notable Book Award and has been nominated for the highest awards in science fiction. In 2003 he published Dreamer of Dune, a moving biography of his father that was a Hugo Award finalist. Some of his acclaimed novels include Sidney's Comet, The Race for God, and Man of Two Worlds written with his father. In addition to his solo work, Herbert has co-authored with Kevin J. Anderson, a number of Dune series novels. Most recently, Brian's highly original science fiction novel, Little Green Book of Chairman Rama, was published in 2014, but today we'll consider his 2013 epic fantasy novel about environmental issues regarding ocean, the concept of which was created by his wife. For more information about his work, see his website, brianherbertnovels.com. We are very fortunate and honored today to have him to be hosting Mr. Herbert. Good morning. How are you doing today, Brian?
2: Good morning, Doug, and well. How are both of you doing?
1: Great. Thank you. An interesting convergence or synchronicity is kind of happening, and I didn't plan it, but so it's the 50th anniversary of your father's masterwork, Dune. And last weekend was also Comic-Con, and what's happening is this new Star Wars movie is coming out, and so it just <laughs> seems like there's this, this bubbling of energy about uh, the, the, the 2016 Star Wars movie. So what do you make of all this, and could you even imagine that kind of world when you're an 18-year-old when Dune was first published?
2: Um, I, um, I, I, I really... I'm really surprised, um uh, and pleased for Dad. I mean, um I remember listening to him reading passages to my mother when we lived in San Francisco. I was uh well, thirteen or fourteen then, and um he would read these incredible passages about Paul Atreides to her and she would give him feedback and but um it was only his second novel, so um it, it's kind of amazing that um he was able to create something so so epic and so and so huge. Um, his first novel, *The Dragon in the Sea*, he invented uh, containerized shipping, and the Japanese and British uh, companies were involved in in trying to produce containers after that for shipping, uh, based upon his novel. So, he he already had a pretty good track record before *Dune*, but uh, um, he he really hit a, hit the ball out of the ballpark with *Dune*, didn't he?
1: He did. <laughs> And it, the influence of that book on the surface is huge. You can see, wow, this, this – but then if you go a little deeper, like like I'm saying, I'm winking out with Star Wars, I mean you can see that it really has had a huge impact on our culture.
2: I was giving a talk in San Francisco one time, and um, when, when I was finished uh, talking about the Dune series and various other things, I, I tend to go off on a lot of tangents, including talking about Frank Herbert's incredible – uh, complex personality. There was an old gentleman that stood up and he he said to me, "I've never heard of Dune. I, I don't know anything about it. Um, why should I read it?" And so I said, "Well, I I'm not here to talk you into it. But if you don't read it, you're missing a huge part of our of our culture. I mean, it's 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 mainstream. It's not just science fiction. It's about strong women characters. Um, it's about human potential. Uh, Dune is a is a science fiction novel." That does not depend upon technology that's very, very rare, um, and in fact, computers are illegal at the time of dune, and they 're only used secretly so it 's largely about about humans, about people, about their potential um, and and all i I can go into a lot of that, but uh, as, as I said, I do answer questions in a very long way, so be careful here <laughs>
1: <laughs> so then. You said you first began experiencing Dune as he, you know, as a 13-year-old when he's reading passages to you. When did you experience it as a totality for the first time, when it was published or when it was in short story form or
2: Well, um I I wrote a biography of Dad, Dreamer of Dune, and um in it I talk about how difficult our relationship was when I was growing up, um the house had to be perfectly quiet. Um, sometimes I would just wait until uh, till my mom got home before I'd go in the house. She she was an advertising writer, so both my parents were writers. But um, dad was in his study, uh, locked in there, creating you know this this incredible masterpiece. And and the children that the the characters he was creating, such as Paul Atreides and others, were really the children of his imagination. And so in a sense, they were my competition, although I didn't think about it that way at the time. But but he and I were were not close. Um, I didn't know what sort of mood he would be in because writers, you know, as I learned later, becoming a writer myself, a writer can be kind of up and down. Um, And I didn't really realize what an incredible person he was until we were adults and until we were adults together. Um, And I had not been close to him, as I said, in Dreamer of Dune. But when I was in my 20s, he took some heroic actions to save my mother's life when she was terminally ill. And, uh, and dad and I became actually the best of friends. Um, so for several years, there was nobody closer to me, um, other than my, than my wife, but, but my dad had shown this love and this sacrifice for my mother, um, that really moved me. And, uh, he and I actually wrote the very last book that Frank Herbert wrote, he wrote with me. So it was quite a journey for me to understand this very complex man, but, um, it had a, had a very good ending for, for our relationship. Hmm.
0: That's a very touching story in and of itself. I think the things that I'm amazed of is how much is in Dune. It covers, you know, ecological <clears throat> problems, it, it covers big government, <clears throat> it covers general semantics. It covers was that one of the reasons why he wasn't around? Was he just always studying
2: when you were younger?
0: Because that's a lot of um, ground to cover. <clears throat>
2: <laughs> well, he was a <clears throat> excuse me he was a speechwriter for the Republican Party and, and when, when I tell people Frank Herbert was a Republican, they just about come unglued, but um, he was. He was a speechwriter for, for a Republican senator, a, a sitting senator from the state of Oregon. Um, and Dad learned a lot of his research techniques when he would go to the Library of Congress to write to research and write speeches for Senator Guy Corden. Of, uh, of Oregon. Um, Dad worked in Washington, D.C. He he left our family in Portland and um, sent a lot of letters back and forth to, to my mom. Um, and then he, he was there for a few months, and then Corden lost his re-election bid. Uh, but Dad was also a speechwriter for other Republican candidates, and every one of them lost, <laughs> even though Dad wrote great speeches. And he, he taught me some tricks about writing stories. He, he would write his speeches in what he called concentric circles. He'd have a short version, a middle version, and a longer version, and he'd present all those to the candidate. Well, that's a good way of thinking, and I can give you a short, a middle, and a long answer to every question that you ask or try to, but, but I learned that from him. Um, <laughs> and so he would go to the Library of Congress, and in those days they would bring a big cart of books, uh, and it would sit right next to him. And he told me that when he opened a book, he had a hard time just looking for the parts that he wanted he would he would read the other page uh he would read the entire chapter um he would read more than he than he wanted to so he learned to really skim and 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 absorb information but he was absorbing from all directions he had an IQ uh around 200 uh, 190 to 200 when it was measured um, so he was off the charts smart um and um fact when he was 9 years old he would Go around with a complete with a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare in his backpack, Um, and one of his uncles in Tacoma, the Tacoma area uh, near Seattle, said that young Frank is is so smart that he scares us. Um, So he was an adult. He was a he was an adult in a child's body, and there's there's lots of stories that I cover in Dreamer of Dune um, about what an adult he was at a young age. So. He learned his ecology from meeting a Native American in that area, um, who taught him to live in the woods and to to, to fish and, and to to live in the Native American way. So, in Dune, you'll see the Fremen that are very much like Native Americans. Um, to Dad, they have a, a love for the the earth, <coughs> and they're very spiritual. Um, <coughs> boy. Sorry, I didn't have my coffee yet this morning. Um, But but Dad, in fact, not only put ecology in there that he learned from Native Americans, but he put the politics in there that he learned from being a speechwriter. And, of course, he had a very strong woman he was married to, Beverly Herbert. So he has very strong women in the series. And by the fifth and sixth books that he wrote in the series, um, Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, women are running everything. Um, Lady Jessica is the most famous and most admired female character in science fiction. And she's not the only strong female character that Dad wrote about. Um, And he would go into philosophy in Dune and um, um, uh, religion. Um, At at the end of of Dune, he talks about all the religions needing to get together and not claim they're the one and only path to God. And he liked to um, combine religions, such as Zen Sunni and... And Buddhist, Islamic, and and words like that to make to make you really think. So um, you can read Dune as this great heroic adventure story of Paul Atreides. In fact, some of the young readers will read it as only that. But there's a lot more in there. It's a dad called it a polyphonic novel with many 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 layers. And you can read any of those layers, and and return to the novel and read a different layer. Focus on on that.
1: Well, you can definitely see why. Jodorowsky was so excited about it. I mean, he was. It really, you can. In his recent, um, they just had a documentary about his failed attempt at trying to turn it into a film, and the you know, greatest
2: movie never made.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really heartbreaking because you can see the passion that he really. He, you know he was thinking it you know in terms of making the movie the messiah that the that Paul represents in the book which was you know just really a product of of the time which the book is too but so what do you think of the film version of it what what did your dad think and how, how did you guys experience dune on the screen
2: Well, you talking about the David Lynch movie sure or the your yeah know, the, the attempt was one of many attempts um, made in the 70s. Um, in fact, at one time, Arthur P. Jacobs, who did Planet of the Apes, had the rights, and um, he died, and his production company didn't continue it. And so there were several attempts, including an early attempt uh, by Dino De Laurentiis that, that failed, and he let it lapse. And So but Dino De Laurentiis eventually came back in 1979 and repurchased the rights to Dune. Um, and from there, he had Ridley Scott at one point on board to direct it. And I cover a lot of the reasons that didn't, uh, that didn't go forward. But when, when dad first saw the, uh, the five hours of, of, of outtakes, uh, that were filmed by Lynch in, in Mexico city at Briscoe studios, dad said it was a, a visual feast. Um, he didn't. You know, when, when they started, when they actually released the movie, it wasn't five hours, it was two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. So there'd been a lot of cutting. And among the cuts were the characterization of Stilgar and some of the others. And so Stilgar, the the, the leader of the Fremen, the desert people, he would just come out of nowhere. Who is this guy? Um, he's very compelling, the actors that they had in, in the in the movie. I mean, two of them had won Academy Awards for... For best actor and best actress in in prior movies, um, and so the, the cast was was incredible, and, and it feels like Dune, and there's some really really neat things in it, such so as when Paul Atreides first first mounts the the worm, and um, and he, it's a battle worm, and he's, he's riding off into, into battle. I mean, wow, what incredible incredible scenes! Uh, but David Lynch put his own his own mark on it. Um, he also invented some things in that movie that are not in the book and so a lot of readers were not happy with that.
1: Could you name an instance of that?
2: Yeah, the weirding way. Um the, the weirding module, uh, the, the the sound um,
1: oh yeah. Well, the, I guess it's like the, an apparatus the, the sound weapon. Yeah. Yeah
2: the sonic weapon and, and, and the way that you know, weirding is in is in the is in the book. But but Lynch changed it a little bit and he created this sound weapon that Paul uses that does not exist. And so a lot of readers felt, well, he didn't need he didn't need to do that because there's so much in Dune already. Why do you need to create something? And secondly, the characterization of, of uh, Baron Harkonnen, in which he's kind of a kind of cartoonish in a way. Um, it's very entertaining. His character is very entertaining. This floating fat man with pustules all over him, but um, it's a little bit over the top. And my dad felt that. And probably the the biggest complaint that Dad had though was at the very end of the book Paul Atreides makes rain and if rain were to were to fall in that way on Dune, it would it would ruin the entire cycle of the of the sandworms and the spice and everything else. So it's just it just wouldn't happen. And so um but the movie, I mean I, I, I still like it. I like the movie. I, I like it overall. And I think Dad did too. You 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 can forgive its its mistakes. Um the two science fiction series that came out later, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune and Frank Herbert's Children of Dune, which included Dune Messiah, both of those, uh, although they were not the big high-budget um, production that, that Lynch had, had directed, both those TV series follow the plot more closely. So if someone's not familiar with Dune, uh, the TV series are a better place to start to follow the plot. But I I still think the Lynch movie has has a lot of of merit to it, and uh, I I still like it to this day.
1: Well, the environment is really an important part of Dune, and it's also an important part of your work, too.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Do you think that's a a product of the, the Pacific Northwest, or just something in your blood?
2: Well, Dad was thinking about finite resources, when, back in the, in the '50s, when, when we were as a nation, we, we were cons- such in, in mass consumption where everybody was going to have all these beautiful products and these big cars. And, and there was even talk about everybody having a robot in their house to, to go around and, and serve them. But, but Dad was thinking in terms of finite resources, and he said, we're, we're not going have we're not going to have water or oil, for example. To, to, use at this level forever. Um, these are limited resources and he knew historically that whoever controlled the water, for example, um, uh, back in middle, middle ages or even before Mesopotamia, uh, whoever controlled the source of the water controlled, um, that environment. Um, and you see water being used by various groups right now, uh, In in, in these wars that are going on to control various things, so he was he was looking back in history and and seeing what he called hydraulic despotism, whereby you control the water and, and control the people, and he was predicting that our resources are finite, and so he said we cannot continue to live like this, and in fact. Um, there 's been a study recently that showed if 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 everybody on this planet lived the way Americans lived, you would need multiple planets you 'd need you know seven or, or or ten planets of resources for to 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 take care of all that we just can't we can 't do it we can 't live at that level, so we have to think about the environment we have to treat it better um, and ocean i mean the, the ocean for me to write that that novel by that title. Um, it was my wife's idea. But we get half of our oxygen from the ocean. And also, uh, out of the seven billion people on this planet, uh, almost almost three billion of them are dependent upon products from the ocean. And yet, what do we do? We dump sewage in it. We dump garbage in it. Um, we mistreat the animals. We overfish. We're driving species extinct. Um, we are not being good um, stewards of, of that water. In fact, I don't think we should say we own the ocean or we even own this planet. I think that's that's a wrong way to look at it. Um, we should live more in harmony with the environment, with the, the land, the air, and the water, instead of trying to dominate it and trying to plunder it, it's, as you mentioned earlier in, in, in something you were reading there. We tend, as a species, to plunder resources. It's sort of an imperialistic attitude. we go in like uh, one of these European imperialist nations into Africa, into an African nation, plunder their resources, and then take it back uh, for the for, for the mother country. We we can't do that. We have to give as as well as take from the environment. Um, and I, I think it's a total. Different way of thinking, and I, I I don't think we think that way today. I've traveled all over this world, and I've seen garbage floating in the in the water. I mean, it's it's disgusting. How can people live like that? Walk right past the garbage, or or take the boats through the garbage, and not see it and not care about it, and not know that they're damaging their own nest when they when they harm the ocean in that way.
0: Wow, you 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 sound decidedly un Republican.
2: <laughs> well Dad was a Republican, but I, I guess you would call him a Lincoln Republican. He was um he was a, a Buddhist, although he is not a practicing Buddhist. He had a big beard ultimately and he was an anti war leader. He was a professor at the University of Washington and he led students in, in anti war protests um in Seattle. So he was not your typical Republican um but his his mind was open to all ideas you couldn't really categorize him um in w- with a label like that you know not what about yourself so i'm pretty much the same way i um i i absorb from all all directions too although I, my mom pointed out to me one time she said my mom was very intelligent by the way as my dad was and my mom said you know Brian there's a study showing that the children of very intel- of highly intelligent people, um, on on average, the children are are not as as smart. And I said, well, thanks a lot, Bob. <laughs> 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 but um, if, if I have a def- deficiency in in intelligence, <laughs> um, I, I I got a head start by by seeing all the things that my dad was involved in and and listening to him. Mm.
1: <clears throat> Well, we've been calling this month Super Normal July because we're considering human abilities that are beyond our material condition. And so, you think of Paul has this prescience and the weirding way, which you know he can manipulate matter with his voice, in, in, you know, in some respect. Tell us a little bit about Chemo and his powers.
2: About chemo and his powers.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, chemo. Yeah, chemo is uh, one of the three main characters in in my novel Ocean. And in the beginning of the novel, we meet him, and he has uh, he's a Hawaiian uh, young man who has tattoos of endangered spe- uh, sea creatures on his body and and tattoos of, of of other sea creatures on him, and and he's he's a tattooed Hawaiian man who you find out that he was born in the water. He was, he was raised in the water. In fact, his mother was in a shipwreck and, um, and he was born and, and the umbilical cord was cut and, and so he lived among the sea creatures and he has this paranormal connection with the ocean and with the animals, the marine animals that live in the water. And so he'll, he was swimming in Hawaii in an opening scene and dangerous sea creatures are following him and protecting him and they're all around him. And he ultimately meets a young woman who um, is a California uh, surfer girl and and sh- her grandfather runs a huge ranch on um, on on one of the Hawaiian islands, and he is one of the people that take from the land. so I have a parallel story of of white society primarily coming in and taking from the Hawaiian people taking their land and using it uh, plundering it for their own purposes and so the granddaughter of one of these plunderers. Meets Chemo, um, and they become involved in an ocean activist group where they they want to help <clears throat> the creatures of the water. And it turns out that Alicia, um, through various things that you can do in a fantasy novel, Alicia can create tidal waves. Uh, she can create different kinds of waves, and so she can ride right on top of the water. And so while Chemo can control all of the various animals in the ocean. Uh, uh, Alicia can create tidal waves and there's a third character named Gwyneth who is autistic and she it turns out has been absorbing all the information from the ocean and she knows when the ocean is going to go completely dead it'll have no more oxygen in it because of what humans have done to it and she knows exactly when that's going to happen and so all these characters have a very urgent need uh, see the urgent need to, to save the ocean and they generate a huge military force of dangerous sea creatures that um, there are a lot more dangerous sea creatures than we can imagine, and I did a lot of research on it and they attack the biggest per capita um, uh, country that harms the ocean, and that's the United States. so they they make military attacks on the United States. they blockade um, military installations and in harbors and and tear down oil derricks. And they take all the garbage that's floating out in the Pacific Ocean. There's a huge amount of plastic floating out there today. Um, and they push it all back to shore and tell people to clean up their own messes. So we, it, it, it's a big epic scale battle. Um, and it's my dad taught me one time. He said, you know, if you have a big message, and if you look a lot at a lot of my books and his books, I've got a message in there, and so did he. Dad said you have to entertain people first. you can't just lecture to them about about the need uh to to change their behavior as as we tend to talk about a lot in these books
1: well so then real- your fiction converges a little with reality i i it was just a month ago I think that Shell had the big oil derrick in Elliot Bay mhm with the with okay. they were Ka activists is what they were calling them <laughs>
2: That's right. The did, oil derrick was out there. Did you, uh,
1: did you, I mean, did you see any of those rallies firsthand?
2: Um, I I did see them, but I, I didn't get out there in a kayak. I've I've got my own reasons for not not doing that. Uh, but I I do think that that Shell Oil and other large companies that are are extracting resources need to listen to people such as those activists. Uh, and I, I think too often, large corporations are, are tone deaf. In fact, you call a large corporation, you can't even get a person on the line. You get into what's called voicemail jail, and you just have to keep hitting buttons. So I, I, I don't think they listen very much to people like that. And in fact, in the in the case of Shell Oil, they, they got around it. They just said, no matter if, if we can't get a permit, we're going to go in anyway and so they, they brought their derrick in even anyway even though the city council the mayor and everybody telling them they they couldn't do it so i guess they're bigger than the government so yeah.
1: um <laughs> i'm trying to think of the scale of that compared to seattle too because it was right there in the bay was it
2: oh it's massive. yeah it's massive um i don't know how many stories it is but um in in ocean, we we tear those down all along the California coast. If you've looked off of Santa Barbara, you look out there, they're out there drilling in, on a beautiful coastline. So that looks like a good place for me to have a scene in the novel. And so we, we have the sea creatures dismantle those rigs and make sure they don't leak and just haul that junk back up on the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I hope shale oil is listening to people that feel that way because... Um, we're really upset about all the past damages that have been done to the ocean, and what we continue to see. And it's not just the ocean; it's the land and the air too. It all goes together.
1: Well, so like like I was mentioning with super normal July, one of the things that we like to play with on the show is that space between. So you have a literary hero who can do supernatural things. We 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 like to play with the idea that maybe. Maybe there's a step in evolution that's occurring where we'll be able to do some of these things. Do you think about that as a writer? You know, what we're doing by writing the book is moving those people off the page into reality.
2: Well, sure we do. Um, And in fact, as science fiction writers, we extrapolate. We'll take something and exaggerate it. So, for example, in the little green book of Chairman Rama, which um, came out last year, um, I, I postulate that the green movement um, has taken over North and South America through street revolution coming out of Berkeley, where I went to college, by the way. Um, there's a street revolution that takes over North and South America, and it creates this green government. But then I talk about the dark side of that government and, and people profiting from the green movement and, and the fact that people that don't follow the environmental rules get recycled. So there's a little bit of dark humor in there, but I, I think the potential—it's um, not so—it's not just human potential as as to where we can become paranormal, but it's also the potential of societies. You can you can take things to an extreme, and so we think that way. We we think in terms of of societies that can be extreme, or we we think in terms of of characters that can be extreme. Um, I think if it's in our minds, it it's possible. I mean, if 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 I can if I can imagine it, uh, or Frank Herbert can imagine it, sure, it it's possible. It's in there somewhere. It's in our subconscious, um, and and we're bringing it out. In fact, if you look, I mentioned earlier that Dune is not dependent upon any aspect of technology. It's about human beings. Well. Look at all the the human potential aspects of dune, the benny Gesserit, the sisterhood. they have these incredible memories, genetic memories going back on the female side for ages and ages um and really, that's based upon uh instinct you, know, you you see beavers building dams instinctual and other animals have instinctual behavior. It's just that human beings don't aren't in touch with our instincts so much, but we do have instincts, so Dad took that idea. Um, and he also had the idea of Jung's collective unconscious, in which there's this vast pool of consciousness, and he turned that into these, the many deserate memories and, and the other memory. Um, and then mentats, which are uh, human computers, basically, they have the most incredible way to uh, project uh, actions and, uh, and to do computer-type uh, work in their mind uh... but they're human beings and as i said earlier in dune computers are illegal Um and then if you look at um the sword masters are this, this great group of incredible fighters and then you have the soup doctors that have in- incredible uh... potential as as medical practitioners Um and there's so much of that going on in dune um and it just makes you think well wow look at all the, the potential that we as human beings have and maybe the biggest thing of, as far as potential goes, are the guild navigators. They're mutated humans, but they can and they can and envision the entire universe in their minds, and they can envision safe pathways for spaceships to travel across the entire universe. So, wow. Uh, talk about human potential. That would Did really be something, wouldn't it?
0: Do you ever suspect your dad of fiddling around with psychedelics in any way?
2: dad uh inadvertently um got a hold of some some psychedelics one time another author uh gave him something that he didn't he didn't really want to want to have he didn't know what it was and uh, a second time it happened to him actually earlier than that it happened in mexico um when he was uh, a guest at this uh generalisimos uh house um and uh was served something that was was not quite right <laughs> but but it was only inadvertent for dad and and he never dabbled in anything like that at all uh, nor have i so uh, did they influence him at all do you think
0: i mean did he talk to you about them and brainstorm on potentialities? because it seems to have a lot to do with the whole theories of human evolution somebody's once said there's a connection between you know, um, when the atomic bomb was made and when psychedelics were so close that almost, you know, humans needed psychedelics to actually process the, the full understanding of the bomb and stuff of that nature. Like, it's almost needed for evolution as far as thought's concerned.
2: Yeah, I think uh, Timothy Leary was doing some things like that back in the 60s, doing experiments A Brilliant Man, but no, dad never never did that. And... I, I think he would have been concerned that it would harm that mind of his. I mean, he, he had that incredible... He had sort of a, a, a galactic library inside his head, um, similar to some things that he's written about. So <laughs> I, I don't think he would want to try to enhance that mind, um, nor would he recommend it to other people, I don't i don't think. Uh, but The Spice...
1: Yeah, which was such a big part of the book.
2: Right. Yeah, so... You know, one time a person called him back in the 60s and got a hold of his person, his home phone number and, and said to dad that he's reading Dune and and he's taking drugs while he's reading it and he's really enjoying it more and 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 dad just didn't know what to say to him, you know, because that wasn't he didn't really want people to be high when they're reading his books. He wanted them to to understand and and see the layers that he was talking about it with, without needing enhancement like that. So so no, dad was not a purveyor. Of of psychedelics or uh, or anything like that, but it, it's an aspect of of the Dune universe. And really, when you look at spice, sure, it has these psychedelic effects. But he was really talking about finite resources again. Whoever controls the spice controls the universe, like hydraulic despotism. Whoever controls the water controls that region, like Mesopotamia, etc. Mm. So, just that you think deeper. And where did he get these ideas? Well, he got them from everywhere.
1: Well, here's one prescient thing said in the book where he says once men turn their thinking over to machines in hopes that this would set them free, it enslaves them. They end up becoming, you know, the people controlling machines are the, the slave masters. And so I wonder what he would think of, you know, we're talking about enhancement with spice and stuff too. I'm wondering what he would think about our reality now with smartphones and how uh, mediated we are with our gizmos and gadgets.
2: Well, yeah, a lot of people who don't know think that Frank Herbert got his Dune ideas after watching Schwarzenegger and Terminator, but it was the other way around. Um, yeah <laughs> and all that stuff you know but um yeah, the dangerous machines and all that stuff um dad um felt very he he had a my mother uh had a grandfather who hated machines he would he would curse at machines and 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 dad saw quite early that that we could i mean all these ads that we saw on t v we had no t v in our house by the way, when I was growing up but but all the ads that were on t v in the nineteen fifties showing all these perfect kitchens and these robots running around, and, and all this stuff going on, he saw the the folly in that. Um, and in fact, I, I I drive around and I or walk around, and I see these people. They're walking out into traffic while they're staring at their smartphone, um, and some people are unfortunately being killed when they're staring at their smartphone. So, and and also they're living inside those those realms, and so they they aren't. Talking to people near them, they're talking to people in that phone. So it's very much removed from from reality. Um, I think Dad would have had a heyday if he if he'd seen this stuff going on. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of the many things that that he predicted. We are we are becoming prisoners of of this technology right now, and it's very subtle, isn't it? People don't realize it. But try cutting it off, you know. And I, I, I do write about that in one of my short stories. What would happen if it were cut off? So that that will be that'll be coming out pretty soon. I have a collection of short stories, and that's one of them.
1: Which leads us, you know, we're nearing the end here. Uh, you have a collection of short stories coming out. You say, what else? What else are you working on these days?
2: Well, um, and then I, what
1: is the? I mean, this year. Uh, sorry, but I think you're probably really busy <laughs> right now <laughs> because everyone is. Contacting you, wanting to get a quote about the 50th anniversary of your father's book.
2: Yeah, um, I'm along with my my nephew Byron Merritt and my my do- one of my daughters Kim Herbert, and me. Um, we are the gatekeepers for uh, any business uh, involving Dune, and so we handle all those inquiries that come in. And there are it's not just a stream of inquiries coming in about people that want to do this or do that with Dune. It's a river of, of inquiries that are coming in. Um, and I'm the president of, that, of the company, the family company that manages that. But I'm also a writer, and I'm, I'm working on a new illustrated uh, version of, of Ocean with an artist. Um, I'm talking to a, um, a, a film agent right now about, about Ocean. I'll be meeting with him in a couple of weeks. Um, and in fact, I have one producer that's interested in, in the story, uh, even though I haven't even gone out to market with it, uh, interested in, he's interested in it as a movie, but um, I'm also finishing a novel, it's The Assassination of Billy Geeling, which is about, well, I don't, I don't want to, I, I tend to give away spoilers, I don't want to say too much <laughs> about it, but it's a science fiction novel, and then my, um, my short story collection is called Dangerous Worlds, and that'll be coming out very soon too, and then Kevin J. Anderson, my co-author on the Dune series and on the Hellhole series, Kevin has the draft of *Navigators of Dune* right now. I passed it off to him several weeks ago. He has it right now. We, take, we pass the book back and forth, so I should be getting *Navigators of Dune* in about two weeks. Uh, you know, another big doorstopper Dune novel, um, and we're on about the fifth draft of it right now. We bounce it back and forth and perfect it, sort of like putting a stone in a polishing machine. We're, we're polishing it.
1: What is the count of the Dune novels? How many are there total?
2: Six that Frank Herbert wrote, um, 13, that, this is the 13th that Kevin and I have written in the Dune canon, and then Kevin and I, that means following the the, the rules of Dune, I'll put it. Um, then we also wrote Spice Planet, uh, Kevin and I did, which is included in The Road to Dune. And that was an early vision that Frank Herbert had for the Dune novel, very simplistic Dune novel about two houses competing for spice and the house that that produces the most spice on Arrakis gets, gets the planet to control the planet very simple idea but he took it and changed it and made it bigger so Kevin and I found his notes we decided to write that so we've written 14 novels together Frank Herbert wrote 6 so there's 20 right now uh, plus the biography Dreamer of Dune um, so 21 books with, with Dune on them
1: well that's plenty to do uh, that was 42 minutes thank you for sharing it with us
2: Okay. Well, thank you. 21 bucks in 42 minutes. That's, uh, <laughs> that's half a book a minute.
0: Uh, Well, you've been listening to Brian Herbert on Sync Book Radio, a production of TheSyncBook.com. Information about the work of Herbert can be found at BrianHerbertNovels.com. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows, or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at TheSyncBook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thethinkbook.com/membership. Thanks so much, and I think we've done enough for today. Let's go for, for a swimmer.
3: Focus the light that night. Slice the hammer to the stars will claim us To further along the spaceways Yeah, that like they blast Languages and dances On their clothes dawn For new our nights to pop our new romances The whips whip up ass to slice the eggs Blast Healy barrels, they rip around strapped up With our chains Wall. From Luxor to heaven's endless sprawl. See the waves match against the glistening. Nine thousand or more that came through the door. The time was 11:55. There were pickpockets and dope fellas, murders and thieves, card shop gamblers with aces up their sleeves, bank robbers, burglars, and Swing a space cake, boys race, ayy It's a tongue kiss. EA started for runners and a pump.